we're back listeners, and we'll never leave you again for more than a week unless it's a holiday weekend or there's a big story we actually have to report on. I'm Mark Hallam, a reporter with the Queen's Courier Newsroom, and I'm here with our weekly contributor, Jacob Kay, who helps produce our, our podcasts. Hello there. This week we'll be talking about Willits Point, its displaced workers, the development's history, and how the city's neglect of Willits Point has served one artist who takes full advantage of the urban decay. Our reporter Max Parrott went on the ground with Joe Zolkowski to talk about his craft. Then we'll talk about how an open letter to Councilman Jimmy Van Bramer, penned by a Democratic Socialist of America co-chair, may have been more representative of a personal beef than the opinions of the progressives towards the borough presidential hopeful. We'll also bring on a special guest, Ron Naclerio, a local legend of a basketball coach, to talk about his equally legendary father. Let's get rolling. Willits Point, a neighborhood of auto shops next to City Field, has been under development for the past decade. Workers inside the Iron Triangle have been displaced time and time again. This week, we bring you a story from earlier this year in May about the displacement of those workers and some history of the development project. After, we'll talk with reporter Max Parrott, who has an update to the story. The following story was co-produced, co-hosted, and co-written by reporter Ethan Starkmiller. In the shadow of City Field, where the New York Mets play, lies the neighborhood of Willits Point, Queens. Well, neighborhood maybe isn't the right term. It's more of an industrial district. The area of Willits Point, often referred to as the Iron Triangle, is mainly home to auto body shops. Shops that sell tires, windshields, paint jobs, any car-related job you could imagine, really, you can find it at Willits Point. But its roads are in tatters, Giant potholes almost define the neighborhood. A movie was shot in Willits Point last year. It was about Puerto Rico, after the destruction caused by Hurricane Maria. Nonetheless, it's home to well over a thousand workers. But the continued existence of the Iron Triangle is under threat. Because like many other neighborhoods in New York, the city has been trying to redevelop it for a decade. In 2008, the neighborhood was approved for redevelopment. But in the decades since, Nothing new has been built. There were once plans to build a mall there. That was shot down in court, though. Now, the plan is to build affordable housing and a soccer stadium. But there is some doubt about whether that will happen, too. Under all this uncertainty, though, one group has suffered more than the rest. The workers of Willits Point. It's people that lost the businesses and, and they are on the street. Many of them, like us, in my situation, they create a situation over here when they close the businesses and, and brought many of us in bankruptcy. The city came, lied to us. That was Arturo Oyala. He's a Willits Point auto worker who's lost his shop because of the city's redevelopment effort. The Economic Development Corporation, that's the group in charge of the project on behalf of the city, they were supposed to relocate every worker inside of the Iron Triangle. Oyala says they haven't lived up to their promise, and now he works on cars out of his own van on the side of the road, like many other workers in Willits Point. We are making mobile business. It's not because the relocation. It's because we don't have no other option. I'm Ethan Stark Miller. 
and I'm Jacob K. And you're listening to Working in the Iron Triangle, a story about how the messiness of the Willits Point redevelopment effort has pushed auto body shop workers out of their storefronts and onto the side of the road. Willits Point is something left over from a bygone era. John Jay College of Criminal Justice librarian Jeffrey Krosler gave us some more background on how Willits Point came to be. It's hard to talk about Willits Point apart from the entire transformation of Flushing Bay and Flushing Meadows Corona Park, because that's it, where that sits, Willits Point, is a leftover corner from the massive transformation uh, that began in the early 20th century. So it's, it's really an anomaly. Krosler says Flushing Bay had been a pristine wetland up until the 20th century, when the rapidly modernizing city turned it into a dumping ground and industrial district. He says this transformation is what led to the creation of the Iron Triangle. I don't know that anyone living can remember a time when there was not this kind of iron triangle uh, of auto body repair and and other other necessary urban functions that had been pushed to the margins. The the reason they could thrive there was that it was wasteland. Uh, You weren't going to put up housing there because it's right next to uh, the park and you've got this degraded waterway next to it. There were no no efforts to clean up Flushing Bay or anything until recent decades. Uh, and so it's not surprising that these noxious uses found a home in that uh, little corner. According to Krosler, Willits Point remained a home for these auto repair shops for so long because the redevelopment efforts surrounding it just never reached the Iron Triangle. It's this little triangle of private land and the city had never been able to actually acquire it. But fast forward to present day. The city has been making a concerted effort to acquire and redevelop Willits Point for several years now. Here's Krosler again, talking about one of the city's recent failed efforts to develop the area. The city and the Wilpons, the family who owned the Mets and part of Willits Point, have been blocked from doing what they want to do. Uh, the city's doing its best to take the property. I don't know whether they've taken all the property or whether they're just in the process of it. I don't know where the current situation is, but I do know that when they tried to turn the parking lot of Flushing Meadow, uh, of, of Shea Stadium, into a shopping and mall and entertainment center, they lost in court. They lost in court big time because it looks like a parking lot, but it's a park. It is designated parkland. And still, the city and the Economic Development Corporation have already moved to push auto body shops out of Willits Point. The Iron Triangle has been divided into different phases of development. The first phase has been cleared, and along with it, all the businesses that once stood atop it. Oyala like many others, was forced out, forced to abandon his business, as New York City made attempts to proceed with development. The development corporation said they offered the workers of Willits Point relocation and education services. However, many workers in the area say they were never approached or offered these services. And so Oyola, and about 40 others, decided they would relocate themselves. The only um, option that I, I saw mm, I bought the van, um, 
I rebuild the engine, I paint it, and I build it, put the tables and, and do mobile. But many of the guys here, they doing the same, working in a fan, they being on the street, because the city really is not doing the right thing. Chrysler agrees. Uh, in, a, in a city that claims to be a city of immigrants and a city of uh, entrepreneurial pizzazz, the, the notion that you're forcing all these small businesses out, uh, immigrant businesses, was, was very shady and uh, not something to be proud of. The Economic Development Corporation declined to comment for this story. And so the question remains, if the Development Corporation provided adequate relocation services, how did these auto workers end up on the side of the road in Willits Point, the very neighborhood the corporation is trying to clear? It may be because of the high concentration of auto shops. Why do you think there were so many auto repair and auto parts places there? There was one that specialized in glass, another that specializes in transmissions, another that specializes in electric electronics. Each one had a specialty, and what you had was a kind of synergy. And this synergy is special because... It was a lot of little guys who had built their niche in, in this business. Now, that, is how, that kind of organic growth that led to that is really what makes a successful city. It's part of what makes a successful city. But Crosler says this doesn't work when all these shops are spread out in different neighborhoods instead of being concentrated in one district. The, the glass guy is in Elmhurst, okay? The transmission guy is now in Corona. The electric systems guy, he's in South Jamaica. I mean, it doesn't work. Then he posed the question, if not Willits Point, then where will we have this district? Are we just going to let that dissipate? That's what was lost when they broke it up without a plan that could legally proceed. And now they've broken it. But despite the city's efforts, workers like Oyala want to stay in Willits Point, keeping it concentrated with auto shops. Because, he says, it's good for the city. The community needs an area like Willits Point. It provides consumers a choice. It drives down prices. It's even good for the environment, Oyala says, because cars and car parts get recycled there. And so, he says, he'll stay. He'll stay as long as he can, until he's kicked out for good, despite the struggle he continues to wade through year after year. If you come in winter, you see us over here working in the snow, working in the very, very low temperatures, uh, raining, whatever. We have to be on the street. We have to survive. We have to survive. Now, just an update on that story. The New York City Department of Housing and Preservation has since erected fences blocking off some of the streets that workers like Oyala were parked along. Oyala has found alternative space in the Iron Triangle, but the fact remains that the amount of available land is shrinking and shrinking. Reporter Max Parrott found someone else who has been affected by the fences. Tell us about this artist. Um, I met Joe Zolkowski, a.k.a. his big new uh, Zolkowski, about um, two weeks ago. He is an a conceptual artist that has been working out of uh, Willis Point for the last couple of years. And I got in touch with him because he's become familiar with a lot of the auto shop owners that 
are working in the Iron Triangle who are still there, um, right next to the sections that were, were closed off. And um, he came in for this meeting of the um, some of the members of the uh, Sunrise Cooperative, which is a group of auto workers who were pushed out of Willis Point Boulevard, the southern tip of that, um, a couple of years ago, and then have, have have now kind of through a series of displacements ended back up in Willis Point with um, just trying to make do with jobs they have. Um, anyway, uh, Zolkowski is just a classic New York eccentric. Um, he has been making these sculptures in the abandoned swampland of Willis Point. And they're uh, mostly created out of recycled auto parts and just things he finds discarded around um, Willits Point. He has a lot of very out there beliefs about um, the environment, but also um, just generally like uh, health concerns uh, in the area. He uh, he swears that uh, the mud in the swampland of Willis Point, which was has been deemed toxic by the city, um, you know, and it has that it they did tests back in 2008, um, and they found all these uh, you know carcinogenic uh, remnants in the soil. Um, but uh, Zolkowski, he has erected these sculptures that just kind of come right out of the mud, and he wades out into the mud. Um, there's pictures of him, you know, just rubbing the mud on his body um, in these photo shoots that he does to promote his artwork. And um, for him, I think it ultimately uh, his his uh, art is about transforming these uh, decaying urban landscapes. He's very into um, the idea of, of urban decay. Um, and that's what he finds kind of beautiful, I think, about Willis Point. It's one of these places in New York that is, it's been neglected for so long. And, you know, it's, for, for Zlikowski, I think, he is most at home in in the junkyard. Now, apart where... from like now, apart from losing his creative sort of ecosystem, is he experiencing kind of financial hardship from being shut out for the most part, from having to deal with uh, essentially trespassing? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, he didn't give me a lot of straight answers about what his financial situation is. He seems like for him. When he found Willits Point, it was a free area for him to do art. So it's not like he was ever paying for, like, rent in a studio space. Right. Like, to him, what he was calling his studio space was just an abandoned lot. So he doesn't have a lot of, like, financial stake in Willits Point. He's just, he calls himself uh, a scavenger. He's just kind of scrounging around to, to you know, make art where he can. But yeah, it is true that these sculptures that he made, they've been um, blocked off by the, the HPD in the process of developing Willis Point. Um, so yeah, that is the point of 
I, I suppose you could call it tension for him is that now it's not as accessible for him to get to his artworks. He has to trespass, but he is very willing to do so. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, no problem. Next up, we'll be visiting the political front. A co-chair for the Queen's Democratic Socialists of America issued an open letter to Jimmy Van Bramer, not only declining a meeting with the politician, but also speaking for the organization and saying that they would not be endorsing him. Jonathan Bailey, the co-chair, called into question Van Bramer's progressive cred on Thursday, with some allegations proving false. But after some inquiries by QNS, it seems as though the differences between Van Bramer and the co-chair might be strictly personal rather than representative of the progressive movement in Queens. We discovered that Bailey had been campaign manager for a formal local activist who challenged Van Bramer not only in 2009, but in 2017. David Rosasco, who opposed Van Bramer, also had a tendency to switch between the Democratic Party and the GOP. The bad blood between Bailey and the councilman was illustrated in an email released by the DSA leader in which he included a screenshot of an email from Van Bramer, which said, quote, I know we have issues, but I was wondering if you would agree to meet up with me soon to talk in person, Van Bramer wrote. Bailey responded to the email with, quote, I have been trying to stay off your radar because I was afraid that if you realized I was the new co-chair of the Queen's DSA, it might make it clear how unenthusiastic we are about the idea of endorsing you. I know you have been trying to cozy up with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Tiffany Caban, but that doesn't make you our comrade, end quote. One DSA operative told QNS that Bailey did not confer with other members of the organization and even warned Bailey not to issue the statement representing the organization, but himself. And for a guest today, we have Ron Niclerio. Ron has been a legendary basketball coach for Cardozo High School in Bayside for decades, where his mentorship has seen many players make it to the big show. But Ron isn't the only legend in his family. Niclerio's father, Emil, was a surgeon at the right place to project him into history. At a 1958 book signing in Harlem, Martin Luther King Jr. was stabbed with a letter opener by Azola Ware Curry, a black woman who would go on to spend the next half century in a series of institutions. Emil was a doctor called to dislodge the blade from King's aorta, a delicate surgery. Now, there's going to be a film about the stabbing of King, an event that often takes a back seat to the civil rights leader's actual assassination. The film titled When Harlem Saved a King will be featured at the Apollo Theater on September 30th. Ron, why don't you tell us about the film? It's the whole complete story mm-hmm. of how Martin Luther King and why Martin Luther King came to Harlem. And it was the first time Dr. Martin Luther King ever came to New York. And what was amazing is there was so much lead up to it. And, you know, a big book signing. There was a a, a black gentleman who was really disappointed or mad at Martin Luther King because he had... uh, bookstore, the biggest black bookstore in Harlem, and he was hoping that Dr. King would do his book signing uh, from the first book he ever written at his store, and he ended up deciding to do it at Dressinger's uh, department store. Uh, he gave a couple of speeches, and 
the next day when he had the book signing, it was packed, and some crazy deranged lady came by, and next thing you know, she walks up to Dr. King and says, are you Dr. King? Are you Dr. King? And when he said yes, she plunges the letter open in his chest. Now, uh, tell us about the... Uh... Tell us about um, the filmmakers. Did they look to you as some kind of consultant? How did you advise? Well, Dr. Reverend Cohen, he started doing background work, background work, background work, and he started finding out who some of the people were involved, and he tried out to go interview. And when he found out Dr. Neclario, he would Google Dr. Neclario and find out that Dr. Neclario passed away. But then when he Googled the word Neclario, he always would see a Ron Neclario, you know, a basketball coach at Cardozo that came up with a lot of articles when he did. And then he ended up putting, you know, Dr. Neclario, Ron Neclario. He saw there were articles, and he realized that I was the son of Dr. Neclario. He made, he made a call and started, came by my house, I don't know if it was 2009 or 2010, to interview me and my mom, uh, and that started the whole ball of wax. Reverend Cohen got was not pictures of my father and Dr. King. He got live video, live footage. And when my mother saw the trailer and saw the live footage, because my father passed away in 1985, she she was she was like shocked, you know, because you know we have a lot of pictures of my father from over the days but we don't have much live footage and when she saw it it was just it was you know hard it hit a nerve and, and it made her feel great but it also she broke down and cried you know it was amazing because not only did my father do something great as a doctor he did something unbelievable for the king family and for mankind because as Dr. King said in his own speech, if he would have coughed or sneezed, none of the things that Dr. King stood for, none of the things that Dr. King got implemented would ever happen. Thank you, Ron. Yeah, I appreciate it. This show was hosted and written by Mark Hallam and me, Jacob Kay. Ethan Stark-Miller co-produced, co-wrote, and co-hosted our story on Willits Point. Max Parrott contributed to this podcast. Our reporters include Mark Hallam, Carlotta Muhammad, Jenna Bagcall, Emily Davenport, Max Parrott, and Bill Perry. Our editor is Rob Pozaricki. The show was edited by Jacob K. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast is brought to you by Schnapps Media.